Um, then uh, Austin, you're going to have to be wide awake back there because we're going to cruise through the message pretty good and we might skip a couple of things here and there. So uh, do your best. The first thing we need to do though is it uh, seems like we uh, have to back up over and over again. And I actually don't mind that very much because uh, two weeks ago, those of you that were here, you will remember, and we backed up a little bit last Sunday. Um, what we did two weeks ago is we reviewed how many different languages here uh, this church family could say the word thank you in. And uh, with two additional ones last week, we were up to 19, and I think we remained true to our pursuit of not checking Google uh, but I did have three more people come to me this week with different languages that they knew how to say the word thank you in. The first one was uh, Danish. Thank you very much, Kira. Uh, and if I recall correctly, then uh, it was simply T-A-K, right? Tack is the, is the Danish word, way to say thank you. So that was fantastic. And then I had uh, Cam come and uh, from Debbie's background uh, tell us what... Thank you is in Ukrainian. Now, I don't remember, so Cam, can you quickly help us out? That sounds good to me. Um, yep, thank you. That's fantastic. And then during the week, I had somebody come and share with me in uh, Swahili the word thank you. Ronelda, thank you very much. And uh, that was, if I recall correctly, Asante. And uh, hence the word, you may have heard it before, the Asante Children's Choir from Uganda and, uh, and that. So... Yeah, we're up to uh, 22 different languages from this church family, and almost all of them come through connections, either family background or uh, visiting that you've done in different countries around the world, etc. And so uh, I'm pretty pumped. We, uh, like I said last week, we completely blew out of the water the guesses um, that were there as far as how many languages we'd be able to say the word thank you in. So that's fantastic. 22. And counting. Who knows what we're going to have this next, this next week. So Curious George was our illustration from, uh, from last week. And thank you very much, Pat, for helping us out with that a little bit already. Um, the challenge from Curious George was that, um, you know, he is, and I, I didn't know this before last week, but Curious George is 76 years old this year. He first made his appearance in 1941, so I'm not sure how many of you were around to witness Curious George make his appearance 76 years ago. But um, we decided that if Curious George could still be curious after 76 years, then, um, then the challenge for us was that we also, throughout life, continue to remain uh, curious. And very particularly, what we talked about last week was remaining spiritually curious. And we kind of compared the concept of curiosity versus certainty, and we checked how Jesus tends to, in the New Testament, uh, encourage curiosity rather than absolute certainty about all kinds of different things. And I even gave you this quote that I read in one article that I had read, and some of you raised your eyebrows a little bit. Certainty is, in some ways, an obstacle to faith. And if you want to, check all the different challenges that Jesus gives to the religious leaders in the New Testament uh, who were very, very certain about everything. And it seems like somehow Jesus challenges or encourages us to remain curious and somehow our curiosity is going to encourage us to continue moving forward 
in our pursuit of finding and knowing and acknowledging and understanding who God is. And so Jesus wants us to be on a continuous movement journey towards seeking out and finding and looking for and understanding Jesus. Now, somewhat related uh, is what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning. Uh, I want to suggest that one of the essentials in this process is for us to become aware again of how great and awesome and almighty God is and how small and frail and weak and dependent and needy I am. And somehow in this process of coming to know God better, we need this concept to be etched firmly in our minds that God is, a, is an almighty and amazing and awesome God and we are actually humans. We are frail, needy, uh, weak uh, human beings who've got issues that we've got to deal with. And somehow that comparison helps us to understand our God better. Uh, one of those reminders, and, and we're reminded of that regularly in the New Testament, this con or in the Bible, this, this contrast, this incredible con contrast. One of those reminders is in Isaiah chapter 40. Some of those verses we read already in the bulletin this morning, and some of them we read last week. Isaiah chapter 40, starting with verse 25, says this, To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. It seems as though in the Bible, over and over, one of the most amazing ways for us to come to grips with the awesomeness of God is by looking to the magnificence of the heavens or the universe. And some of you have been on that journey. I have really enjoyed uh, studying some of that myself. Very, just very kind of surface studying, of course. But the magnificence of God is evident as you look at the stars and we begin to grasp that God is the creator who made all of this and who came up with it and who put it in place and, and who dictates how it's all going to work and, and when and where those stars are all supposed to be. And then in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 28, Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. And then you keep reading and it, and it goes into the frailty of us as human beings. And it uses the word weak and it uses the word tired and it uses the word weary. Even young people grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. Even the strongest of the strong here on earth, they still become weak. In contrast to a God who never, even though he's working with the heavens, never ever becomes weak. Or tired. To even compare that awesome God and the power that He had in putting the universe in place with us as humans seems completely um, incredible. It seems completely out of place. We need to understand that vast difference between between God and us. God is God, the creator of the universe, and we are human. And if you take a little time and you look at your own life and you look at the lives of the people around you, it seems like there's just a, an unending reminder of our humanness. 
We have health issues. We have sin issues. We have psychological issues. We get tired. We are tempted. We give in to temptations. We flounder. We groan. We moan. And I believe that only when we begin to grasp our insufficiency and our weakness and our vulnerability do we become a candidate to understand and experience the fullness of the awesome power and the glory and the majesty of God. And so we move into the New Testament and we see a thread kind of running through the pages and this thread again and again, it highlights the weak state of humanity, but it doesn't just kind of highlight or accentuate the weak state of humanity. What it actually does is it seems as though it, it reveals how critical it is that humanity become willing to admit and accept our weakness. And in a sense that we, this seems strange, but in a sense that we actually learn to revel in our weakness. Because that somehow allows God's awesomeness to be put on display even more in our lives. I will show you a little more of that thread in just a minute. But let me just interject here that this weakness thing is a little bit of a dilemma for humanity. Because humanity, generally speaking, sees weakness as a problem. We see weakness as a weakness. We like strong, we like power, we like big, we like dynamic, we like growth, and, when, and we don't like weak. And when we see people that are physically weak, uh, we see people who don't push themselves hard enough, or maybe they eat too much and they don't exercise enough. When teams are weak, they lack good coaching, or they don't practice hard enough, or they aren't willing to pay the price. When our vehicle is weak, it needs a good tune-up, or the engine needs to be chipped, or it's bad fuel. When our voice is weak, it's an indication that we are sick. And when someone is spiritually weak, then they're probably not fully committed. They're probably not reading their Bible enough. They're probably not praying enough. Or, or maybe they're not willing to deal with spiritual strongholds in their lives. There's an, there's an expectation that we should all be able to always be strong. Humanity has a problem with the concept and the willingness to admit that actually we're weak. Because weakness shouldn't be. And yet you look in the Bible and there's this thread that you can't ignore. And I'm going to show you a little bit of that thread. So, Bethlehem was too small to be the birthplace of a king. David was too young to become a king. Later, David had huge immorality issues. Samson had significant commitment issues. Rahab had purity and honesty issues. Moses had anger management issues. And when God called Gideon, he said, But Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And that's just a little sprinkling of the weakness thread in the Old Testament. Sometimes this weakness is physical, sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's spiritual, sometimes it's moral. But in each case, there is definite weakness. And then we move into the New Testament. Jesus was born into a weak Jewish family. 
He grows up and begins his time of ministry and he chooses 12 disciples and he does not choose men who have it all together, who are strong. He bypasses the government offices and the religious leaders' homes and the businessmen families and instead he chooses fishermen and tax collectors and guys with a weakness in honesty and integrity and foul language and definitely lacking in pedigree. I love reading about the actions and the teachings of Jesus also and he never fails to totally surprise his listeners. This weakness thing is one such area in which people were surprised over and over when Jesus taught. In Luke chapter 9, you will read, An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest human pursuit. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all He's the greatest. And I can't help but wonder, did they really believe that? And then I wonder, do we really believe that? The weakest one is the greatest? The one with no money, no friends, no job, no education, no spiritual victories to brag about, really? I'm not convinced for a minute that we really believe what Jesus said. He who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Listen to what he says in this next little section. Matthew chapter 20. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your... Servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. It's as if Jesus says, I have an upside-down way of thinking. In my kingdom, things don't work the way they do in the world in which you live. It's different here. And so Jesus says, let the little children come to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And then at another place, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, totally weak and dependent and willing to admit it, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, weakness is not a weakness. And not only is weakness not a weakness, actually weakness is essential if you will understand my kingdom. And so Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you may be weak as can be, just barely hanging on at all, not sure how much longer you can hang on to your faith. If it is as small as a mustard seed, Jesus says, that's, that's all I need. That's all I need. In fact, sometimes it almost seems like he says, that's all I want. I want you to be someone that realizes how incredibly weak and vulnerable you are. I want you to be someone that realizes that all your good deeds are nothing and that all you have to hang on to is actually the grace and mercy of God. Here's an interesting verse that I found as I was plotting my way through Romans in the last while. Romans chapter 11 verse 32. And I would encourage you to check out the context of the verse because it's actually very interesting. Romans 11.32, where it says, God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. 
Somehow we have to become weak. It is essential. We have to, to come to understand our need for grace and mercy. And the ones that are weak are typically the first ones to get that. And those of us who think we're doing all right, we're strong, well, we've got a, a bit of a problem. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, to tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you, the weakest ones. It would be more comfortable if Jesus would at least have said the ex-tax collectors and the ex-prostitutes. Maybe that was an oversight on his part. Or maybe it wasn't. The weakness thread in the Bible actually becomes a little disturbing at times. Then there's the story that Jesus tells about the two men that went into the temple to pray, and we referred to that here a couple of weeks ago in Luke chapter 18, and how the one man that on the outside has it all together, and the one man that on the outside has everything going wrong, and the weak guy apparently is the one who goes home ready for heaven. And the guy that has it all together goes home and he's still got huge problems. And then there's Paul, the greatest missionary that ever lived. He struggled like crazy with weakness in his life. We don't have time here this morning to go into all of his issues, but I want to encourage you to read 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, the story about Paul and his thorn in the flesh and how desperate Paul is to have his weakness removed. It's got to be gone. If I'm going to be effective in ministry, then the weakness has to be removed from my life and I have to be strong. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, Paul says, I, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I continue doing. In verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Only through Jesus. Apparently humble brokenness is a higher priority for God than, than mighty strength. And apparently weakness helps bring about humble brokenness. Apparently a humble and broken Paul will be a better missionary than a strong Paul. Feeling inadequate? feeling small, feeling like a spiritual failure. Those feelings don't worry God. In fact, it seems like God is saying that I'm far more worried about those who do not have any of those feelings. God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. If you are feeling weak today, then you are in a beautiful place. You are in the exact place where God is ready to extend His grace. And apparently that's what God does best, is extend grace. And so the Bible shows us our weakness. And Jesus teaches about the value of understanding and accepting our weakness. And in that place, also coming to understand God's awesomeness that has me completely covered. Amen.